when we are writing music, it's easy to start to get stagnant and go to some of the same things over and over again, or to have something really simple that can make a huge difference in our music that we never actually utilize or touch. So in this episode, we are going to be talking about three things that you are probably not using enough in your music. Hello, friend. Welcome to another episode of the Songwriter Theory Podcast. I am your host, as always, Joseph Dalla. Honored that you would take some time out of your busy day and week to listen to this podcast, to learn about songwriting, to talk songwriting with me. I'm glad the craft of songwriting is important enough to you that you are choosing to not listen to your favorite music right now or Joe Rogan or whoever else, uh, but that you're choosing to talk songwriting with me. I appreciate that. If you haven't already, be sure to grab my free guide on the four pillars of music theory that I think every songwriter absolutely has to know. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that I'm big on, hey, music theory is useful. Don't fall for the lie that, well, A, a lot of people think that music theory is just being able to read or write sheet music. It has nothing to do with sheet music. That's not what music theory is. That I actually would agree with people is like not super useful unless you're going to play other people's music. Uh, Certainly useful, you know, when you're being trained classically for an instrument and all that. Yes, of course. But for songwriting specifically, I I mean, I've basically never used my knowledge of that ever when songwriting. Uh, But music theory is not that. Music theory is basically, you know, how music is put together and understanding things like, you know, for example, how a five chord makes it so that it really wants to go to a one chord after, which is what you can utilize and say a pre-chorus, have a five chord at the end of it so that it really desperately wants to go to that one and then you play the one chord at the beginning of the chorus and it makes your chorus feel extra huge so it's really extremely practical stuff and there's a lot of stuff that's that's useful to know in music theory but ultimately if if you're unsure and you're like i don't know man this music theory stuff it sounds academic and it sounds not practical just grab this guide because it only teaches the four what i think are core things which starts with intervals because everything else is built off of intervals. If you understand intervals, that's like the most foundational thing that adds or supports everything else. Uh, But then from there, keys is incredibly important to understand. Chords and then chord progressions. Everybody likes chord progressions, right? Uh, That's the one thing I think every songwriter can somewhat agree on, except kind of me because I'm not anti-chord progressions. It's more of a nuanced thing. But anyway, we'll get into that another day. I think I've talked about it before. But In this episode, though, we're talking about three things that you're probably not utilizing enough in your music. Oh, by the way, songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide is where you can grab that. Totally free. Link will be in the description and show notes per, I'd say usual, but really always. So one thing that you're likely underutilizing in your music are inversions. And there are a bunch of ways to think of inversions. One way would be simply changing the chord form. Uh, Specifically for guitarists, this is probably the main way that you might think of inversions because really, for the most part, guitarists don't think in inversions. Uh, It's not a pianist thing, but it's certainly more uh, intrinsic to how you would think of music as a pianist uh, than as a guitarist. Now, again, just being somebody who understands music, you would understand inversions, but a lot of times, the way a guitarist might think of it. So, if, if you take if you take um, 
a, a chord chart or whatever you call that, right? Where it has lyrics and it has the name of the chord. So, so then the guitarist just knows, oh, it's G chord and E minor chord. And then uh, A minor, I forget what key I'm in already. Uh, I think it's a G major first, E minor. So yeah, A, a minor. Um, so you have that, right? And then you sometimes you see something like, you know, G slash B, right? So in that context, a guitarist thinks, oh, for me, it's just a G major chord still. The bass guitarist is the one who plays the B, which is true in the sense that's almost always how it's done, and there's nothing wrong with that. But really what that's saying is, hey, this is a G major chord in first inversion rather than in root position. So in root position, a G major chord sounds like this. And then in first inversion, it sounds like this. Now, to a guitarist, again, usually they're just thinking, oh, it's just, right? Same thing, I'm playing G major. And I know I'm sort of equating this to piano here, but that's essentially usually how, as a guitarist, they think of it. It's, it's bass versus guitar, which has truth to it. Um, another way to look at it is largely just untethering your bass note from the root of your chord, but you're still keeping it chained to notes within the chord. And you can utilize inversions on all different levels. So in, in its truest form, an inversion really is just where the lowest note of a chord is one of the notes that isn't the root of the chord. So, for example, even if, even if I play root position G major chord with the piano, if the bass guitar, which I don't have on me, but imagine this next part is a bass guitar, is playing a B, then the whole chord does become a chord that is in first inversion. So inversions, by definition, are determined by the lowest note of all. But as songwriters, it's helpful to think of inversions on many more levels than that. So, for example, we could have a, the opposite, where the bass guitar is actually playing the root. So it's playing G major. But... The piano part actually plays first inversion with that B in the bass and then goes to a C major. So there's that. But then also, especially if you're a pianist, you can go even one level further where right right now in my right hand, I'm playing root level G major with a B in the bass with my left hand, which then makes it first inversion. But I also can just change the inversion up in my right hand. Right, so this is first inversion which sounds different inherently than this, right? It's the same chord, but it sounds different. And then second inversion. So there's many ways to think of it, right? So in the same way, overall in your song, you can have it in root position. But something that can go a long way is if you have two different guitars or two different guitar parts, if you have one that's playing one chord form of G major that's essentially playing, you know, this, but then you have another guitar that's that's making sure that maybe it has uh, first inversion, so B in the bass. And by in the bass, I don't mean bass guitar. I mean like literally the lowest note you're playing of that guitar chord, probably on your low E string, is a B. And if you combine those together, it really thickens up the sound and can be just a great way to make your arrangement a little more interesting. And as often, if you've ever heard the term like wall of guitars, 
often a part of how they achieve that. A part of that is a bunch of parts at once, right? And, you know, some parts are doing arpeggios and some parts are, you know, doing different rhythms, right? So that that's all a part of it. And it's, it's a whole bunch of guitars coming together to kind of make one huge, massive guitar sound. Um, but another way that they achieve that, uh, I know specifically Ver- Vertical Horizon does this a ton, where they have, you know, if it's a G major chord, they will have like four different G major chord forms on the guitar being played at once, which all have slightly different sounds. So they all come together to create this massive G major chord that one person with two hands couldn't possibly do, nor could just one guitar do, rather than playing the same chord form over and over. Now, just to be clear here, different chord forms on the guitar are not necessarily different inversions. You know, there are plenty of different ways to play a G major chord on a guitar that still is root position, where the lowest note is going to be a G. Um, But as a guitarist, chord forms is a great place to start, but then going that little extra step and actually thinking about inversions can go a long way. So just as like a basic example, if we take C major, if we take the most boring chord progression in human history, which is the one, five, six, four, uh, which by the way, doesn't, doesn't make it, you know, you can still utilize it and be fine. Some of my favorite songs still utilize that chord progression. I just poke fun of it because, well, everybody does. And because it does kind of deserve it. Um, so in its most boring form, right? It's just, or second most boring form. Really, it's most boring form that's terrible is if I do root position of every chord, which would be this. So that's incredibly boring and sounds like you're not even a real pianist at all. Um, And then the second most boring form is keeping it still technically root position, but at least I'm using inversions in my right hand to have better voice leading within, within the piano part. So technically, all the same inversions, but my right hand is playing different inversions to keep it so that instead of these awkward skips, right, that's kind of awkward, sounds terrible, nobody plays that way. So instead I'm using inversions to keep the notes all closer together. Right, same exact chords. But then the bass notes were still all root position. So technically, it's still all first, or not first inversion, root position. But we can actually change the sound pretty significantly just by changing up what inversions we use. So for example, one you probably heard a lot that does a good job of just changing it up a little bit to make it just a little less cringe than this. All right, there's a little bit of cringe there, almost like I, I almost like feel guilty for playing it. But just by changing up one of the inversions, we can start to get somewhere. So if we change our second chord, our G major chord, our five chord, because uh, we're in C major in this example. I don't know if I clarify that. I know we were kind of in G major before, but now we'll go to C major to keep it simple. So our one chord is going to be uh, C major, of course, in C major. And then it's going to be G major is our five chord. A minor is our minor six chord. And then F major is our four chord. So if we just change that second chord, that five chord, to first inversion putting B in the bass instead of G in the bass, then we'd get this. Now already, that's, in my opinion, significantly better. You get that nice little descending bass line, right? And then it does skip for the last one. 
but already it's way less cringe than this. Maybe way less is pushing it, but it's less for sure. Then, you know, there, there are other versions we could do. Let's say we do, instead, we do first inversion for the root chord. Then it would be like this. For each of those, right, I changed the inversion of one of the chords on the most typical chord progression in history. So certainly, if you have a chord progression that isn't the most common ever done, that's way overdone, and you just change up one inversion, it can go a long way. Play with inversions. All right, second one. Broken chords and or arpeggios, which technically aren't the same. I feel like usually they're kind of used synonymously. I sometimes have been guilty of using them synonymously. Technically, they're not the same. So for what it's worth, arpeggios are really supposed to be all in one direction. So an arpeggio would be uh, like... Notice how it's literally up, like just just the the repeated three note arpeggio up constantly. So the second we start doing something a little more intricate with just not all up or all down, so that would be true arpeggios. Technically, it's just a broken chord when we do something a little more nuanced, like right because now it's one and then well. No, I don't know why I said one, but it's up and then comes down. So it's a four note pattern now and it's beginning up, up, down. Technically now it's a broken chord. Uh, and certainly when you get to something more advanced, like something like that, that's truly a broken chord. Not that that was particularly advanced, but it certainly is not just... So anyway, regardless of the d technical definitions of broken chords and arpeggios, for what it's worth, every arpeggio is a broken chord. Not every broken chord is an arpeggio. So broken chords is kind of the, the bigger category. So in general, broken chords are a great way to create some rhythmic interest as well as to build a nice finger picking pattern for the guitar, for example. So from a guitarist perspective, Often this will be something like, or at least how I think through it when I either do a finger picking pattern or a picking pattern just with a pick, um, is usually you're thinking like, okay, you know, low E string and then A string and then G string and then, you know, maybe go to the, the pi E string and then to the B string or, you know, whatever it might be. So you're, you're thinking of a pattern, right? And then you just change the chords underneath it. So that would be an example of a broken chord. So finger picking, picking on a guitar, that, that is just a broken chord, essentially. And certainly the same for piano riffs. So like Clocks by Coldplay, that would be a broken chord and dangerously close to a true arpeggio. I think technically there's one place where it goes up. I'm trying to hear it in my head right now. But uh, Clocks by Coldplay would be an example of a broken chord, probably the one of the more famous examples of one. Uh, if I'm a huge Five for Fighting fan. Uh, chances is a great example of just really well done broken chords that again aren't necessarily complex but really adds some more rhythmic interest compared to block chords where you're just doing you know what we were doing earlier the whole that it has its place in the world some songs do kind of need that um just just because it 
fits better with the subject matter or the musical feel that you're going for. So there's nothing wrong with those. But broken chords can go a long way in either making, you know, your primary instrument in a song way more interesting with a finger picking pattern instead of just strummed chords on the guitar or with some form of broken chord or arpeggio on the piano instead of instead of just a chord progression. So um let, let's do uh so this would be in the context of a D major. We have a 4 6 five chord progression. If it, if these numbers are confusing me, by the way, go, go check out the aforementioned free guide on music theory. It'll explain the numbered chords. Um, so, so in D major, a four, six, five would be G major, B minor, A major. So if we take that, right, you know, that's fine, especially if it's just support at the beginning of a song, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what's more interesting is something with a, the same thing, exact thing, but let's do broken chords. Exact same chord progression. I did not change the inversions from the first example at all. Is literally just a super basic utilizing broken chords. It's basically the same pattern. It's and then same pattern and then and then I change it up to make it feel like it's accelerating. Where I just go down and truly do true arpeggios. But anyway, just that simple thing, right, can go a long way. Now maybe early in your song you do want. But a great way to grow it later in your song is to, to go. So now it's way more interesting. And again, the chords are exactly the same. So <clears throat> it can be utilized for your primary instrument, whether that be a guitar with finger picking instead of strumming or a piano part, where instead of just doing basic block chords or some version of chords that isn't quite broken chords and it's closer to block chords. Instead, you can truly do an arpeggio pattern or some form of broken chord pattern, uh, which is one of my favorite ways, by the way, to write a, a piano riff. If I, if I were to break down my main process for a piano riff, because I, I, I play piano and guitar, I'm more of a pianist and I prefer writing songs on the piano and I generally just prefer the piano overall. Um, I love electric guitars, especially for what how big they are and how much they can add to choruses and stuff like that. But as far as like a main songwriting instrument, I'm I'm definitely more piano than guitar. Um, but so I say that as a like, hey, look, I, I care I care about piano riffs specifically, um, and you know sometimes I do block chords because it feels like it's what's right for the song even if it's less fun to play and it's less intricate. Sometimes a song calls for that. But very often, I instead will opt for some form of piano riff, which almost always for me involves some sort of broken chord pattern in my right hand and some form of bass line in my left hand. So uh, just to pick a random example like this.
So that's the same pattern over and over in my right hand. So it's just that over and over again. And then a bass line in my left hand. Right? That's all it is. In a lot of <clears throat> my riffs, and a lot of just piano riffs in general, really, when you break them down, are something like that. They have some form of sort of sort of bass line in the left hand that's being played, even if you know it might involve a whole chord and whether it's a single note or octaves, right? Doesn't really matter, but usually fundamentally it's sort of this bass line type thing, and then the right hand is usually doing some arpeggiated thing um, or broken chord pattern. Uh, Clocks by Coldplay is a little bit different. That one is technically just like the exact same broken chord pattern in the left and right hand, so it's just in octaves basically. Um, but even if you don't utilize it for your primary instrument, which I highly encourage you do, whether you're a pianist or a guitarist, if you have strummed all of your songs so far as a guitarist, uh, a great way, an easy way to have a song that is, if not noticeably different, different enough that if you had a five-song EP, you've written four of the songs, they're all strumming, if you just have one with a finger-picking pattern, that's enough to give that little twist that you're not just in this very small box of what you're able to do. And it can really refresh your creativity because it's amazing what a finger-picking pattern can do to make even a really pedestrian chord progression something that is like, oh, nice, cool, interesting, different. Um, but <clears throat> another thing you can do is in your arrangements. Arrangements, arpeggios, and broken chords are super powerful because you can have... You can utilize them to, to really um, build some anticipation. Let's say it's like the end of a second verse. Maybe you're in, uh, we'll say, D major. Um, so, you know, you, you could do something where we just take the first and the fifth of a D major chord. And then it gets more intense, so it's... And then more intense again. So, and you may say, well, that's not really that intense. That's not, that's not really the point. The point is like in context, right? So you have kind of... Like there's just a clear difference, right, between... Those weren't particularly good examples. That's what I get for trying to come up with an example off the top of my head. But the idea is that you can have some simple part that, you know, comes in like this. Or something like that, right? Where there's a clear raising of the ante with each one and that was the most like that was super basic that was literally just a d major chord but at first it was just the d and then d f sharp and then you know one pattern with the full d major or whatever it might be right so just mixing up the rhythms and how rapidly the notes come and whether it's up has a different sound than down. So just utilizing stuff like that with random parts, 
whether that be a random guitar part that adds to your arrangement or a synth part, or maybe you're not really a pianist at all, but you can still add something that's that basic um, to support your largely guitar-driven song. So anyway, broken chords, arpeggios, underutilized, super powerful both in the arranging side of things and in the songwriting side of things. Uh, Piano riffs would be a giant bore without them, at least in my opinion. So last one, modes. And I'm looking at myself for this one as well, because the first two I do utilize a lot, but man, modes are the, is that thing where I'm always like, man, I, I, gotta, I gotta use those more. Um, because it really, we often live in this world of just major and minor, right? This is sort of false dichotomy. Like, oh, I can have a song in major or minor. Like, no, no, no. There's shades in between them, as well as one shade darker and one lighter than uh, both one lighter than major and one darker than, um, tech. Okay. Technically there's two darker than minor, but one of them's uh, unusable basically. Um, which is the low Korean mode, which sounds super cool, but is just, it's just not useful, but Phrygian is useful. So we're so conditioned with like all oh, major or minor, but it's like, no, 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 we can go one step brighter than major and have a more ethereal feel with Lydian. We can go one shade darker than regular major by doing mixolydian, uh, which is very commonly used in, in in rock music. And that's really what gets you the, um, if you've ever heard a chord progression like this. Anything like that, that's very mixolydian because the implied root here is a, a D major chord. So normally, if we are in D major, the key, then we would have a C sharp and not a C natural. And just in general, we don't have a C major chord. We would have this really horrible C sharp diminished chord in D major. But for Mixolydian, we actually flatten the seventh. So we would get a C major chord, which is how you get that sort of going just down by one. Um, from from the root chord, and it's still a major chord compared to like you probably like never heard that second one in your life. It's terrible, but that's pretty common. That's very mixolydian. And then uh, a basic example of lydian, because I mentioned it, would be if we'll do D major again. Normally it's D major, E minor. Uh, but instead it would become E major because there's a sharp four in um, Lydian. I almost said Locrian. <laughs> Lydian. Um, so it gives you a sound like this. Now where that would naturally occur is if it were a song in A major, but if this is treated with D as the root, That's a very Lydian sound. So we talked about one shade brighter and darker than major, right? And then there's even another shade darker than major before you get to minor, otherwise seen as minor, but one shade brighter, which would be Dorian. And then we have uh, one shade darker than minor, which is one of my favorites, if, if not my favorite. Specifically, it's my favorite for like rock music. 
uh, which is is Phrygian, which is if you think the Jaws theme, basically. And I, I have whole podcasts breaking down all these modes. I'm gonna blow through stuff, and this is very high level. Largely, I'm just saying, hey, modes exist. Maybe use them. So if you want a, a better breakdown, go check out those episodes. I believe I also have YouTube videos about each one broken down. I might not have finished that series. Maybe I need to go back and finish those <laughs> that series. I feel like I got through like two of the videos and then get distracted and went another video direction. I'll have to check that out after this episode. But regardless, I have stuff out there for certainly all the modes, whether videos or podcasts. Uh, I don't know. So I know I know there's a podcast covering it. So the Jaws theme, right, which is this sort of, well, we'll do lower. Right, it's that, which the root is B, and then C being the note that goes to. Now that would be a classic Phrygian sound because Phrygian is minor, but it has a flat two. So if you take, for example, um, let's let's pick on C minor. Right, C minor has basically all the notes from C major, but instead of E. It has an E flat, and instead of A, it has A flat. Instead of B, it has B flat. In Phrygian, we actually flatten the two as well. So instead of a D, it's a D flat. Which is what gives us that In minor, it would be. That's minor. This is Phrygian. Right, so it's a little darker. So in minor, it would be something like. Just dark. But in Phrygian, it would be. Which again just gives you that jaws root half step up root half step up so anyway that's phrygian moral of the story is that we have things outside of major and minor keys we all should probably use them more looking at myself as well I tend to be decent at utilizing like Phrygian, especially when I'm writing darker rock music. Not so good at utilizing things like Mixolydian, which is common in rock to make major a little less obviously sweet, uh, which is interesting because based on a lot of the genre I sort of work in, you would think that I would utilize it more. And I'm a big fan of what I call melancholy major, which is when you're technically just in a regular major key, but the way you do things makes it still sound melancholy and sad, but it's not so sad or so, because like minor often sounds straight up depressed, right? But it, sometimes it's like, okay, I, I don't want it to be that down. I just want it to be like melancholy. I want it to be darker. Uh, so anyway, hence melancholy major which I think is a term I made up, but the idea is it's really just major, but based on the way you do things, it, it sounds less uh, less major, I guess, uh, less bright. So regardless, utilizing modes is a great way to get some different shades 
um, simply taking the time to try to write a song that's in Mixolydian or Lydian or Phrygian, especially if you write a lot of stuff in minor keys going that one step darker, or Dorian going that one step brighter than regular minor key. Uh, it can be a great way to go. So overall, three things that you're probably not utilizing enough and at least one of them that I'm not utilizing enough either, so don't feel bad. Uh, not that you should feel bad. You should never feel bad about this. That's, that's why we're here, learning together as friends. Um, so inversions, broken chords, and or arpeggios, which are a specific type of broken chord, and modes, all things that you can utilize in your songs, in your arrangements, and will certainly help you level up, even though... All of these things are fairly simple. Inversions, especially if you want to just pick one thing to work on this week, you're like, wow, okay, you hit me with three different things. And at least one of them is kind of big with modes because it, it it essentially, and, and we're just counting modes of the major key. There's technically other modes as well, but, but just off of the major key, the modes include Ionian and Aeolian, which are just other words for major and minor. But then there's Lydian, and then they there is Mixolydian, and then there's Dorian, and then there is Phrygian, and then there's Locrian, but that's not really useful. So before you had two, now you're up to six, right? We tripled overnight the amount of sort of note templates that you have um, to work with. So yes, that's a lot. That's a big discussion, uh, especially since you could literally write every song you ever write in a major key and still have a ton of variety and never not write in a major key. So the fact that I just, you know, took the two that you started with and now it's triple, yeah, it can be a lot. But if you're going to pick one, pick inversions. That can go a long way. It's really easy. Literally just think to yourself, okay, I'm playing chord X, whatever it is. The notes in this chord are A, B, and C, or A, B, C, and D, whatever. Uh, however many amount of notes there are. Probably anywhere from two for things like power chords, five chords, Um uh, up to four. Some, sometimes there's five, but that's, I don't want to call it rare, but for most singer-songwriter music, it, it, the tendency is that it's two to four. Um, pick a different note other than the root note, aka other than the note that the chord is named after. So like G sus chord, for example, which would imply a G sus four chord, which would be this, has a G, a C, and a D. Root position is always, it's called a G Sus chord. So G is your root position. So the default is the bass would have that G. If you just pick any of the other notes, in this case, a C or a D, then you're changing the inversion. And we'll ignore the fact for now that technically, uh, once you have C in the bass, at that point, it's arguably more like a C sus2 chord. But that's a discussion for another day and a technicality that really doesn't matter. So thank you so much for listening. I know I probably threw a lot at you today. Again, if you're just going to pick one, pick inversions for now. Maybe come back to this episode later, pick up on something else later. And you know what? Throw in broken chords because that's another thing that should be fairly trivial to switch to. Normally, you're used to maybe a block chord. Now think, how do I break it up into a pattern that I like? You know, whatever it is. Uh, whether a guitar via finger picking or pick picking or the piano or whatever instrument you play. Although probably one of, probably one of those two, if it's violin or uh, 
base, then it not probably not as useful to you. But regardless, thank you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. Be sure to pick up that free guide on the four pillars of music theory that every songwriter, in my opinion, really needs to know. If you're confused by anything in this episode, pretty much everything that I mentioned is, is uh, I, th- I think literally everything except modes as far as music things that I kind of assumed you knew, such as oh, five chord and four chord and what, what the heck does that mean? All that is explained in that guide. Check it out. Totally free. Songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide. Thank you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I appreciate those of you who have taken the time as well to leave kind reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave reviews. I know some of you have let me know via email that you've done that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, especially those of you. And I know some of you have gone out of your way because you're like, well, I don't have Apple products. And I don't use Apple Podcasts, which, hey, I get. I also don't use Apple products. I'm not a huge Apple fan, frankly. Um, so so I, I get that. And some people went out and created an account just to leave a five-star review. That means a lot to me. And I, I know that that is, you know, it, it's kind of a pain. It takes a little more time than you think it will. I mean, I guess it's still five minutes, but still, right? Like, that's five minutes you didn't have to do. <laughs> and or 10 or 20, you know, depending on how good with tech you are, it might've been even longer. Um, But, you know, I understand lives are busy and stuff. So any amount of extra time that people put into just leaving a kind review means a lot to me. Want to make sure you know that. Thank you for listening. I feel like I've, I've uh, faked you out multiple times that the podcast was ending. It's actually ending now though. So I'm Joseph and you're welcome. Um, But thank you for listening. I appreciate all of you, whether you leave a kind review or not. I love you anyway. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you in the next one.